go to Marks and Spencer. Go and see what's new in Terraline. Yes, Terraline for you and you and you. Styled for St. Michael, everything's on show. There at Marks and Spencer, so let's go. St. Michael shirts and trousers with Terraline. Perfect for playing around in. Look better, last longer, shed wrinkles faster, and no pressing. Let's go to Marks and Spencer. That's a clothing advert from Marks and Spencer from 1963, courtesy of the company Archive. Today, M&S is still one of the best-known brands in the UK, but the story of its clothing business is one of highs and lows. And in the 21st century, it's tended to be lows. I'm Graeme Ruddick, and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Richard Price, the Managing Director for Clothing and Home at Marks & Spencer. We speak about his efforts to bring the spark back to M&S clothing, but also his fascinating career in retail, which includes starting at Next in the 1980s and working for Tesco and Sir Philip Green as the boss of BHS. I spoke to Richard Price at the buzzing heart of M&S's clothing business in its offices in Paddington, London. Here, new products are whizzing past on clothing rails and the drawings for new designs are all over the walls. I think, simply, the business has got a bit of belief and confidence back and you know we're a product business and it all does start with a product and I think we we've got a much greater understanding of our customer and what our customer wants I think we've been very uh, schizophrenic in the past and tried to serve everybody and I think we've had a real focus on um, what we internally call or an externally call our modern mainstream customer and I think we've just basically had a real focus on what does she want from M&S and just delivering consistency across all of our product areas but you know just making our product more desirable, making it easier to shop, really focusing in on a more curated offer. I think our stores used to be quite cluttered and quite busy. You know, we've moved to wider walkways. We've put less product in front of customers with more confidence. We've been working really hard to address our style credentials because we are, we have been for some time, you know, in the customer's eyes, market leaders really in terms of quality and value, which is not always seen as, as the most stylish destination and you know, certainly the teams have been working really hard to make sure that we've got the right trends and we interpret them in the right way for, for the MS modern mainstream. Richard Price took up the role as head of clothing and home at MS in July 2020. Price had been poached from Tesco in November 2019, where he had been running Tesco's FNF clothing business. However, as you may have noticed from those dates, the role at M&S turned out to be rather different than he initially expected. While he was on gardening leave between the jobs, COVID-19 struck, and Price found himself starting work at M&S from his home in Leicestershire. I had the benefit of working for M&S for seven years in the past, so I knew the business pretty well. I had a reasonable 
understanding, I thought, of what needed to be done based on both my experience working outside of M&S and within. So I had, had you know, a fairly clear idea of, you know, I knew the product, or felt the product wasn't strong enough. I felt we weren't clear enough in terms of the customers that we were trying to serve. And I, a lot of what I was sort of planning to implement has been followed through. But I think there's no doubt that probably the speed at which we've done it and the bravery, which I think we've, you know, we've, we've had to take some real brave decisions to, you know, to move away from some of the old cash cows and some of the pieces of business that were, you know, have been protected for years, you know, in order to change the style perceptions for the long term. So um, I think it, we were definitely able to be a bit braver. I think there were some green shoots already starting to, to come through, but um, I think the main thing was a business that was just severely lacking in belief and confidence. You know, we're in, in many, many categories, we're market leaders and, I didn't feel we were a business that was behaving and acting like a like a a business that can set trends and lead, you know, the market and, and and you know, give customers the confidence that we know what's on trend and that customers can trust, you know, our style primarily. We, we've we've been trusted for quality for decades, and and I think that was still the case, but just our ability to you know to predict and and lead from a trend perspective was was not there, and that confidence to do that. You've said, I think, that that it was boring and lacked relevance. Obviously, the business wasn't setting out to do that. So, so how does that happen? Why was it like that? I think when you're protecting large volumes of core business, that you know you can look at the cash that you took on those areas, you know, for the for the last X number of years, and and you know sometimes to to step away from the historical sales is is quite a brave thing to do. And I think the business just became sort of backward looking and too protective of its history and, and its heritage and not enough emphasis on being forward thinking. And, you know, we're, we're living in a world now where, you know, the competition is is strong. There are new entrants coming into the market and, you know, customers are more demanding than they've ever been. They want newness, they want colour, they want style. I think one of the things that is helping M&S is, you know, as customers get older, they don't, they don't want to behave like they're getting older. They want to dress younger and more on trend and you know we talk a lot as a team that it's, it's less about age and it is more about attitude it's more about how people want to live their lives and and how they want to feel as opposed to you know what's my absolute age and i always use the analogy that you know my father doesn't dress like his father and i certainly won't dress like my father and everybody's modernizing and i think that kind of ageless society is is a real opportunity for us. Has that meant that you've lost customers as, as you've gone along, that you've had to basically say, we can't cater for what they want anymore, we're just going to have to say goodbye? We, we, we've been prepared to. Whether we've, you know, whether we've... <laughs> I spoke in the past about being prepared to get letters from customers who, who are, will, will complain that their favourite type of skirt or their favourite type of trousers is no longer in the range. I actually think more often than not, the majority of our loyal customers have liked the modernization and the new approach because you know we've very much done that with our core modern mainstream customer at heart we've not abandoned them i think we've we've presented and curated ranges that are are actually aimed for them and they probably didn't realize what they wanted until it's been served up so some of our best and most positive reactions in terms of what we've done with our products have been from our our most loyal and our, our core customers so i think in a way she she didn't know what she wanted until we 
provided it. There are small elements, I think, where customers have lost their old favourites, but I think they've, they've, they've soon moved on and adapted. How important has it been to have a smaller range and to have other brands within the range as well? How much more room for move has that then given you in terms of your Yeah, I, I think... I think ha- having a more curated range, you know, cu- I think customers can only cope, particularly in stores with so much choice. You know, our stores were over full, uh, over cluttered, and sometimes creates the impression you've got a lot of stock that nobody really wants. You know, we one of the things that we now do as a matter of course is we celebrate sellouts. You know, it's a good thing that if customers, you know, if we've not bought enough of something, that's a great thing. We learn and next time we'll buy more. We, we you know, we're now creating a buzz and a hype around selling out of product. By having a, a narrow offer that allows us to really invest and buy deep into the product we really believe in, whether that's our, you know important categories or within the categories, the products that we really believe you know, our customers are gonna like the most. We've done a huge amount of work in investing in our marketing lines, the lines that are on our mannequins, lines that are in our campaigns. These, these are the lines that customers see or drawn to and you know, almost without exception, become higher demanded products so we were really investing in that product that we really believe in that we want to put in front of customers if you if you encourage a team to take more risks because that sounds kind of a little bit what it's like in terms of being confident enough to back themselves and and doubling down on what they think will work and then also being confident enough to say actually we don't need to sell that product either yeah massively um you know we you can't be in the fashion business unless you're prepared to take risks you know there's a classic methodology of of test and learn and trialing, but customers want the latest trends. They, they want it when they want it. You know, there's a real buy now, where now mentality. And I think you have to sometimes just back your belief. And uh, as I constantly say to my teams, if I've got a room full of experts who are pretty confident in a color palette or a look or a print direction, more often than not, if if the the whole room is saying, We've got we've got something really special here. Then it, it more often than not works, and just being brave enough to just sometimes take a punt, take a risk, and um, as I say, more often than not, um, those those sort of things work. How confident are you that this time that it isn't a full storm? That it has been turned around the business because I've covered the business for a long time, written about it numerous times. How the MS clothing has been revived. This time it has been backed up with with results. How confident are you that you can sustain that? Yeah, I, th- I think I think pretty confident. I think we, you know, as I said earlier, we've got growth on growth. Um, we've got a good momentum. I think there's a confidence within the business now that we we're much more assured in the decisions that we're making and the product that we're buying. You know, I recognise that there's a cynicism in the market for the reasons you've said, and you know, nothing in life is guaranteed. But I, I do think that we've got a, a direction of travel now. The team are very together. You know, we are very focused on i believe sometimes we're only as we're only as strong as our weakest link and it's really important that you know yes we've done some amazing things in our women's wear is getting quite a lot of the plaudits but you know behind the scenes our men's wear has really improved and we know that we're appealing more now to families and getting men's wear right kids wear right our heritage lingerie right and then building on our home and beauty business is all really really important in terms of keeping that brand momentum and you know we're really focused on making sure that you know all of our areas are improving at the same. How much more work is there to do? Because obviously, while results improve, the share price is still de- is still down from from. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot to do still. You know, we still think that 
we can be even more confident in the way that we buy our product. There's probably more opportunity for us to to narrow our ranges in certain categories. You know, we're only just starting off on the journey from a third party brand's perspective. So there's loads to play for there. You know, and in certain categories, you know, like home and beauty, we we've still got relatively low market share. So, we, you know, we think we've got a real opportunity to to build share in some of those categories where we've been less dominant over time. Richard Price started working in retail with Next in 1989, where he was a merchandise manager and rose through the ranks. He has spoken in the past about not wanting to have any regrets about his career when he looked back on it, which is why he's taken up opportunities at other companies when he looked set for big things at where he was. He left Next for M&S in 2005 and he rose up through the ranks there as well before joining BHS in 2012 and then Tesco in 2015. I mean, I'm a competitive individual. You know, I played a lot of sport when I was young and I, I like to take on new challenges and, you know, you know, great job running the Tesco clothing business. But when the opportunity to come and, I suppose, take what I see as the biggest clothing and home job in in the UK, High Street, certainly at the time, I just, you know, and, and the one thing about the seven years working here before, you, something about this brand and, and our customers that is hugely infectious and the opportunity to come back and what I saw as probably the ultimate challenge because of the the sort of challenges that the business has had over over the last few decades. Um, I saw it as a, you know, just a, just a natural career move for me and, you know, I came to, back to M&S because it was a business that I loved and, and, you know, I really felt that I'd got the right level of experience and knowledge of the high street to, to you know, to, to, to make an impact. And, um, you know, and I've, I've loved the three, I mean, I can't believe how quickly the three years have gone, if I'm honest. Uh, and, you know, it's been a, it's been a challenging period, you know, because transformation is challenging, but I think, um, you know, I've had total support. I've been, really been able to implement things in the way that, you know, I've wanted to do it. I had total support from the board and the business, you know, brought in the team that I wanted to bring in. And, um, you know, I've got a really nice balance now of, you know, external recruits that I brought in and some people that have been with the business for, for a long, long time. And I think that's a really good balance for us to have. How did you get into retail when you started out? Was it always the plan to, to get into no, retail? not at all. I mean, when I left university, I didn't, I wasn't massively interested in fashion. I just got a job as a trainee at Next not really knowing what I worked in merchandising, didn't really even know what it was when I when I took the job and um, just found it was something that I had an affinity for, really enjoyed it. And, you know, I joined at a time in Next History when they were transforming. Um, they just launched the Next Directory, very exciting time. I suppose when, when Omnichannel was, was kind of invented, albeit I don't think even Next knew then when, when um, David Jones bought Grattan that they were quite... Build, they were, they were, what they were building at the time, but um, great learning, great learning curve, and you know, I, I just love the industry, and um, obviously been been in it ever since. So it, it definitely wasn't. Um, there was no fashion talked about through my education, or or even my um, you know my early thinking. During his time at Next, the company bounced back from nearly collapsing when its share price fell to just six p a share. It was during this period that Next launched the Next Directory catalogue and laid the groundwork to become the successful online and store business it is today. 
I remember being in a in a selection meeting one day when the share price was six p, and we were all almost packing our bags and thinking it was all over. So, um, but again, you know that competitive nature. We were there was a lot of young people in their first jobs at the time, very determined, quite brave, quite courageous, and um, yeah, learned a huge amount from from those periods. And um, we were we worked inc- incredibly hard. Uh, I can rem- you know remember we used to. You know, it was it was beers and pizza at the desk till ten o'clock at night because we were in the middle of a battle. But you know, the, the, I suppose those moments define you and make you realise sometimes you just got to work really hard to get through those moments of adversity. But we all loved it. You know, we had a real team spirit. It was a bit of a campus feel. It almost felt like we were still at university. You know, a lot of young, energetic, creative individuals felt a little bit like we were building a startup because the business was, you know still quite young and you know had its challenges you know George Davis had just left the business so it was it was it was basically a complete reset moment how much has that experience helped you here with M&S in knowing you know when a business goes as close to living as that and knowing what was required to turn it around yeah I mean I was early on in my career so I, I don't know whether how much that that influenced you know I've I've learned from many of my experiences to be more resilient you know, certainly worked for some strong, bold leaders. And, you know, I learned a lot about myself, you know, when I worked for Philip at BHS, when I, you know, working for David Lewis at Tesco. And you sort of grow with each experience. And, um, you know, I don't think I could have done what I'm doing now 10 years ago. So some of those external experiences where you learn a lot about yourself and the more mature you get, you probably fear failure a little bit less. And I think that's that's been a big enabler for me because I, I I do I don't really feel failure in this role because I think that you know I've kind of proven myself a few times over the years and I just see opportunity because I think this is just you know it is a great business with, with you know with lots to go for. You touched on it there, but the bosses you've worked for there is a pretty extraordinary list. You touched on next and Stuart Rose, Mark Bolland, Philip Green, Dave Lewis. Who would you pick out amongst? that collection is as what you learned from and what they were like to work for i mean i've learned a lot in in different ways from from most of them i mean you know david jones was my first ceo when i started a huge amount of respect for david simon's reputation goes before him you know and i learned a huge a lot from simon you know probably dave lewis was the reason i joined tesco because i was really inspired by the turnaround that he was just embarking on, you know, he joined Tesco when they had, you know, the significant challenges and the confidence that I could see in him in in sort of what was an enormous turnaround at the time made me feel like I wanted to be part of that. And I suppose that similar kind of thing coming back to M&S made me sort of realise that, that, you know, that, that that sort of challenge is something that you can really, um, you know, embrace and, you know, use in a positive way rather than fear. And as I said, I don't think 10 years ago I would have had the confidence to come back and do, you know, and make the decisions that we've made now, whether that's with the team or the way we've moved the business forward. After working for Next and then having his first spell at Marks & Spencer, Richard Price ran department store chain BHS between 2012 and 2015. BHS is worth a podcast episode on its own. At the time, the business was owned by Sir Philip Green, but shortly after Richard Price left in 2015 to take up his role at Tesco, the business was sold for £1 to a consortium led by Dominic Chappelle. 
a year later, in 2016, BHS collapsed with the loss of 11,000 jobs. Richard Price found himself hauled in front of MPs to answer questions about the collapse of the retailer. On the day he appeared, he sat next to his successor at BHS, Darren Topp, who accused Dominic Chappelle of threatening to kill him. I learned a lot. You know, it was the first time I'd ever worked for a private business and, you know, worked very closely with business. You know, BHS was very close to his heart. You know, obviously didn't end well and, and there were some challenges. And I think I look back on that and, and you know, learned huge about, about myself and, you know, the role I had to play there in terms of, in a similar way, giving belief to a business that probably hadn't been invested in for a long time, you know, was quite challenged and hadn't seen growth and trying to energise a team that were pretty browbeaten, really. And um, there was a big sort of rebuild and, and big motivation, you know, challenge with with that team. But as I say, I learned a huge amount about my own leadership style and my own resilience. And, you know, whilst it was only three years, I'd probably that was probably a very significant learning curve for me. What sort of things did you learn? Well, you know, Philip was, was a tough taskmaster. You know, um, he was he was at times hard to work for. Uh, had to be really brave. You know, it's the first time I've probably ever been managing billions of pounds of a, somebody's personal wealth as opposed to shareholders, which gives you a different emphasis. And, um, you know, just making sure that when things are more difficult, you know, when you're working for, a, you know, a private business that's owned by an entrepreneur, the impact and the... The conversations are just very different. Obviously, you left before every, everything happened. You left to go to Tesco and a, and, a, and a very good job. Could the business have been saved? Was was there something there to save? The $64,000 question. Um, I think it would have needed significant investment. You know, a lot of the stores were very tired. And whilst we made significant improvements to the product, we weren't really spending a lot of money telling customers and improving the environment. So... I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I think it was it's fifty-fifty. I mean, you've you've seen you know some some great iconic businesses that have fallen by the wayside since then. So you know, it's not it's not been the only one that's found the um, the UK high street particularly challenging. I don't really know whether it would, whether it would have or could have survived. Really, are you glad you did that job when you look back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, now, I'm not the sort of person to to easily regret stuff I, I think you've got to take the positives out of out of everything that you do and I, as I say I actually enjoyed vast uh, parts of that role even though it was tough you know even though but you know there was there was some you know there's some fun times you know Philip had a sense of humour and you know he was he was a fun guy to work with as well as being a tough taskmaster and it wasn't all as uh, as probably as hard as maybe externally it would have been perceived. One last question on BHS. I must ask you what it was like appearing in front of MPs because you you were obviously there that day, um, and if you don't mind me saying so, you were kind of relegated to a bit of a sideshow as everything else went on around you. Um, what was what was that like? Because obviously you'd left the business well before yeah. this was getting investigated, um, but it must have been. Uh, a unique experience and also a pretty chaotic one. Yeah, it was. It was I think at the time, it probably the most daunting thing I've ever done, uh, and probably still to this day because you just—it's just a fear of the unexpected. You know what you're going to get asked. I was probably more fearful because I was working for Tesco to get drawn into 
debate around, you know, I've sort of been prepared as to the sort of direction that the conversation may have gone down. As you say, I was very, very fortunate in a way that I was relegated to a sideshow and that made me quite happy that <laughs> most of the headlines and the conversation, I, I just, for me, the, you know, a great result from, from that situation was to be the one that wasn't talked about in the morning and in the papers and thankfully enough was said by the other members of the you know the panel that made sure that I was I was definitely not the one that was being talked about or quoted in, uh, the, in uh, the papers the following day so uh, it was that was a result for me how much preparation do you have to do for hearing like that because as you say when I mean, you weren't even working for the business anymore when um yeah when, I mean, when the hearing I mean took Tes- Tesco were brilliant I mean they you know they invested in a in some very very thorough preparation so effectively replicated the entire experience with a group of ex-MPs and civil servants who who knew the protocol and put me through a very rigorous practice session if you like so I was I was definitely as well prepared as as I ever was going to be so uh, that helped. Richard Price has worked for some of the most high-profile leaders in the retail industry and the UK business world more generally but the person he picks out as the most inspiring leader is none of those. It's Brian Clough, the former manager of Nottingham Forest, who led the club to two European Cups. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a pretty massive Forest fan and um, very relieved that we've managed to avoid relegation um, a few weeks ago. But yeah, I think growing up as a child, being a season ticket holder and going to Forest, Week in, week out. Well, he was everybody's hero, I think. I think what what he always managed to do was was to get the best out of a fairly unglamorous, mediocre set of players. And he, he, he managed to galvanise teams in a way that I think very few managers that I've ever known or seen in, whether it's in sport or in industry, have managed to do. And I think, you know, his ways weren't always popular. He was a bit of a controversial figure, but I just think what he achieved with with relatively little resource was was staggering, really. And well, he was charismatic. When you look at how he achieved it, what sort of stands out as as things that you can apply to business and to leading in retail? I think the fact that the team and the sum of the parts is much greater than any individual that plays within that team, and I don't think he ever allowed any ego within his teams to overtake the greater good of the collective and I think I think you can see now the particularly in sport the successful managers who are able to manage the big egos and the big players and and I think it's no different in business I think opportunities that I thought when I came back to MS was for the ability for us to behave as a team and win as a unit as opposed to necessarily it was a little bit siloed and I, I suppose I always think of, of Brian Clough when you when you when you're trying to get the team to work together to to play all play in the same way. I think you know. I liken it to you know Man United a few years ago when Paul Pogba and the you know they had all the great players, but somehow it just wasn't. You know, the egos weren't controlled and they weren't managing to a player as a team. And I use those analogies. And I suppose Brian Clough always comes to mind when I think about that. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you will find bonus content as well as business news and analysis every day of the week. You can sign up at Off to Lunch 
www.substack.com. <laughs>